This is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Cox. Hello. This week, Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal. Earlier this week, she and three other members of the House Judiciary Committee submitted a court petition to unseal grand jury materials related to the Mueller investigation, a move that, in Jayapal's view, marks the official beginning of an impeachment inquiry into Donald Trump. While the way forward on impeachment may be uncertain, Jayapal's reasons for advancing are not. I think the path to fascism is littered with moments when people could have stood up or spoken up and didn't. And I just want to make sure that I can tell my kids and my grandkids and my constituents that we will not let that happen, that we will speak out regardless of what the political consequences might be. Also, the Seattle Arts Voter Guide is the first of its kind, laying out the arts-related platforms of the many candidates for Seattle City Council and School Board. We're joined by two of its creators from Seattle University, who discuss the many intersections between the arts and civic issues, and about the importance of the arts to a culturally rich city like Seattle. That's all ahead, so stay with us. Last week, four members of the House Judiciary Committee published a piece in The Atlantic declaring that they are moving forward with the impeachment process by submitting a court petition to unseal grand jury materials related to the Mueller investigation. One of those committee members is 7th District Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal, and she joins us now to help address some of the questions that have come up around what this filing means for impeachment. Congresswoman Jayapal, thank you so much for joining us again. Thank you for having me. So why were you and the others on the committee moved to submit this court filing and why now? Well, I think the Mueller hearing was really an inflection point, a watershed, however you want to describe it, to have Robert Mueller in front of us saying to the American public exactly what was in the report, denying the idea that President Trump and his administration, Bill Barr, have been putting forward that somehow Uh, The Mueller report exonerated the president. Somehow the Mueller report said that there was no obstruction of justice. That was simply not true. And we had at the hearing Robert Mueller himself to say very clearly in answer to the chairman's questions, our report did not exonerate the president. Our report found uh, 10 counts, evidence of 10 counts of obstruction of justice. And so once we had taken everybody through that, I think all of us on judiciary, uh, the majority of Democrats on judiciary had already asked for or come out for an impeachment inquiry or investigation. I think that hearing was an inflection point where people really understood that if we were going to say over and over again that nobody is above the law, including the president, that we really needed to start this process. And so um, we, after making multiple attempts at accommodations with the administration to try to get the information we needed, to try to get witnesses to come and testify, and seeing the administration continue with ongoing obstruction, we have finally decided to utilize the highest Article I powers that are afforded to us, um, which include consideration of articles of impeachment. So that is what we started on Friday. Um, And I think that we are now actively in that impeachment process, and it is absolutely necessary. Um, By the way, our investigations will not just be limited to the four corners of the Mueller report. We have always said that the Judiciary Committee has jurisdiction over a much broader set of issues, which include violations of the Emoluments Clause, 
um, of the Constitution and also other financial entanglements that have uh, come to light between the Trump campaign and many other properties that they own, um, conflicts of interest that we've seen over and over again. Yeah, so you're going to be casting a very wide net there. You know, you mentioned Article 1, and uh, you've mentioned that the Trump administration has so far stonewalled various investigating House committees. So what in the Judiciary Committee's court filing compels the White House to comply and produce these documents and witnesses? Well, when we invoke our Article 1 powers, it would be extremely unlikely for the courts to weigh in and say that the administration would not be required to give us that information. And in fact, in previous impeachment investigations, the Department of Justice has actually been supportive of and gone in together with Congress to get that classified uh, grand jury 6E material because it is actually our responsibility to investigate and to hold accountable um, the other branch of government. That, unfortunately, is not going to happen this time around. But it is, you know, we are assuming that the Trump administration will at least listen to the courts. That is what we need to see happen. And, you know, I think uh, when you invoke those Article One powers, the courts are likely to say Um, And we'll see exactly how this all goes. But they're likely to say that Congress has the right to this information and Trump administration, you have to turn it over. I know you can't get into too many specifics at this point, but what is the committee looking to obtain with its petition? And specifically, are you looking to uncover redactions in the Mueller report made by Attorney General Barr? Yes. And also the testimonies that underlie many of the conclusions of the Mueller report. So this is grand jury material, which is typically kept classified, except that Congress should be able to have access to that in these situations that we're in right now. Um, We have obviously asked for some individuals to come and testify before us, some of their material, maybe grand jury material. It will allow us to get the full picture of what Robert Mueller relied on to make his conclusions. And that is critically important, not only for the conclusions that are within the Mueller report, but as I mentioned, some of the other areas of jurisdiction that we have, um, Russian election interfering uh, as well. And so um, I think that those are all pieces that we need to now build the full picture for us in Congress because we are undertaking consideration of Uh, articles of impeachment as part of this process. Um, We may do that. And so we we really need to know exactly what is out there in order for us to have a full investigation. Well, then let's talk about that, what comes next potentially in the timeline. So an article in Politico released Wednesday says that Democrats on the Judiciary Committee have agreed to a two-month schedule of court filings. What is going to happen during that time? Well, um, during that time is when we will be moving forward a number of the pieces, um, the petitions that we've already filed, the the hearings around that, um, the entire process as it starts with the courts will be over the next two months. And so you'll see, for example, I think the judge scheduled a conference. I need to go back and look, but I think it might have been today on the petition that was filed last Friday. And so we'll be in the process of obtaining information Um, of working with the courts to get those accommodations and to move those things forward. So um, once we 
see what we get out of that process, we'll be able to determine the next phase of, of information that we need to gather for our investigation. We are um, also separate from the courts. We are continuing to call forward witnesses. You know, we had reached accommodation with Annie Donaldson, who is a critical witness in the Mueller report. Uh, remind listeners of her role again, if you would. Yeah, Annie Donaldson was um, John McGann's top, uh, you know, number two, basically. Um, and she she was the one who took notes of some of the meetings that Don McGahn was in with the president around the firing of Robert Mueller. Um, very, very important charge of obstruction of justice. And so her testimony is going to be critical. We were not able to bring her in, as I said, because she is in her last trimester and we wanted to be sensitive to that. So she's providing us with written answers to questions, but then she has committed to come before us in the fall when she's delivered her baby. And so there are other pieces of information that we are going to be continuing to pursue separate from the court filings. Um, obviously, the um, the subpoenas that have been uh, blocked by the administration, we're taking those up in court as well on an ongoing kind of schedule. And so all of that will be I think, coming out over the next couple of months. Right. And so the same Politico article speculates that if the committee ultimately introduces articles of impeachment, as your colleague Jamie Raskin suggests may be the outcome of all of this, that it may happen in October. And that is when many people are concerned that it will be too late because we'll be into the presidential election season then. Does that concern you? Well, if I had had my druthers, it would have it would have happened sooner. Um, but we are already in some ways in the presidential season. I don't think that this can be an issue of partisan politics. I think we're talking about the Constitution and upholding our democracy, and we have to do what is right. I know there are some people out there on the Democratic side who are worried about what happens in the election if we move forward with this. But I am most worried about what happens regardless of the election if we don't move forward with this, um, how do we explain to anybody that somebody could be sitting in the White House committing crimes that a thousand bipartisan federal prosecutors have said would be prosecuted for anybody else, and yet in the White House, um, that person is allowed to not have any consequences? That seems untenable to me. Um, I think that when we look at uh, the fact that the 2020 election is not guaranteed. Mitch McConnell is doing everything he can to make absolutely certain that we do nothing around election security. The House just passed an election security bill. Mitch McConnell refusing to allow that to pass in the Senate. Right. President Trump seeming unconcerned about something that Robert Mueller has both in a seven minute speech and in his testimony said clearly this is sweeping interference by Russians in our elections, and we must, must, must protect our election system and the integrity of, of people's votes. So I think that we have, you know, I think every path is fraught with some different concerns, perhaps. But at the end of the day, as a member of Congress sworn to uphold the Constitution and fight for our democracy, um, I cannot go to sleep at night and wake up in the morning knowing that um, we are not doing everything we can. And uh, last thing I would say on this is, you know, I think the path to fascism 
is littered with moments when people could have stood up or spoken up and didn't. And I just want to make sure that um, I can tell my kids and my grandkids and my constituents that we uh, will not let that happen, that we will speak out regardless of what the political consequences might be. Well, and indeed, you were someone who really wanted to get out in front of this, as you mentioned, uh, much sooner. You were the first member from our state to come out in favor. Uh, You came out in May. Congressman Adam Smith followed. And then two weeks ago, uh, Congressman Rick Larson came out. And then on Sunday, all remaining Democrats came out, Kilmer, Schreier, Delbeni, and Hack. In your mind, what does it mean to have a united front with all the Democratic representatives from Washington on this? Well, I think it's important because um, then we don't we we have a unified message. And I think this has been one of our challenges is that, you know, we need to be able to um, to explain to the American people what's happening. And the best way to do that is to have a very unified message. Um, Obviously, some people, um, certainly in my district and across the state, there are a lot of people. This is what they've wanted for a long time. And they've been frustrated that they haven't seen Democrats moving on this. I would just say, let's focus on where we are. Let's focus on the fact that we are now in in the in the process, in the impeachment process. Um, There is no vote that is needed of the House to invoke our Article one powers. And so now let's focus on explaining what is happening to the American people and on really lifting up the need for us to be strong um, and clear and unified about how we're going forward. Well, and speaking of unification, the Judiciary Committee made its court filing with Speaker Pelosi's approval, yes? Correct. So the narrative has been that among Democrats that this is a divisive issue, uh, but it does seem that at least on the filing that happened and insofar as you are saying that that indicates that the impeachment process is underway, that there is some sort of unification within the Democratic Party. Absolutely. I mean, uh, these court papers would not have been filed by House counsel Doug Letter and the Judiciary Committee were Nancy Pelosi not in full support. What Pelosi has said over and over again, and remember, I mean, she's she's the speaker of a very diverse caucus. And so she does have to be concerned about how everybody um, understands this. We on the Judiciary Committee, I think, were in the fortunate, unfortunate, I don't know how you want to describe it, but in the position of get of having all the information early. I mean, I've read the Mueller report three times. Wow. We have been uh, in the weeds on seeing the Trump administration obstruct justice over and over again, fight us on every subpoena, fight us on every witness, even in Hope Hicks' testimony to refuse to allow her to answer where she sat relative to the Oval Office. I mean, ridiculousness. And so I think you know, now a lot of that information is out. And I also think that Robert Mueller's testimony made it so that no Democrat, I wish it were Republicans as well, but certainly no Democrat could ignore this. Now it's, you know, you've seen, I don't know what number we're up to today, but every day um, numbers more of Democrats coming out and saying, yes, we need to address this. And that's not just progressives like me in, in relatively safe districts. It's frontliners. It's people who got elected because their constituents trusted them to do what was right for the country. And so I think now you're just seeing that really come forward. And, and that has been possible in part because uh, Speaker Pelosi has also you know, understood that we can't continue to just say, 
that nobody should be above the law and yet not do anything. What she has said over and over again is we need this process so that we can uh, assemble the strongest possible case if we are to go forward. And obviously, there is still a possibility that we could gather all this information and for whatever reason, feel like we don't have what it will take to be able to recommend articles of impeachment. I I don't think that's likely, but I think it is certainly a possibility that we're all open to. And so we really are very much committed to being able to quickly do our obligations, use our powers and move this forward. And I think people will be watching this very closely moving forward. And I will tell you that uh, as of Wednesday, July 31st, there are 114 Democrats who have stepped forward in in favor of an impeachment inquiry. Just one last question. What can we as activists here in the state be doing to support the impeachment process? What I think is really important is for people to get themselves educated about exactly what the process involves, what happened um, in previous impeachment inquiries. I am on the campaign side going to be doing an impeachment town hall in early September. As soon as we've got the details lined up for those in the region, uh, we would love to have, of course, Indivisible involved with that. And Jamie Raskin's going to come out as oh, well, constitutional law professor. Um, and so our plan is really to do sort of a town hall slash teach-in so that people have the information, so they understand exactly what's going on, um, so that they can ask any questions that they need to ask, because the name of the game now is to educate, educate, educate people across the country. What is in the report? I would really encourage people to go to the House Judiciary um, Twitter site, and you will see that there are a series of videos um, that the House Judiciary Committee has been putting out five crimes in five days, where we are actually doing very short videos that describe what those acts of obstruction of justice are and using the testimony of Robert Mueller to kind of explain this. Um, So I think that there are very, very important, if people have not read the Mueller report, they really should at least read the abridged version of the Mueller report, um, because what we are dealing with is about as serious as I can fathom in our time. And I think everybody Um, Whatever you can do to understand the situation clearly, to know what is in the Mueller report, to know what the process is going forward, and then to educate others, that is really what we need. And then, of course, for those people who are in districts with Republican representatives, the question is, are those Republican representatives going to stand up for the Constitution or for a person who is a bully and perhaps they're afraid of, but is undermining the fundamental values of our democracy? And that is the question. And certainly, as you're saying, uh, we are very much in uncharted waters here. Uh, We will look forward to the impeachment town hall, and we will certainly have information about that forthcoming. You have been enormously illuminating today on this subject. Uh, Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal, always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Always wonderful to be with you. And huge shout out to Indivisible everywhere. (laughs) 
And next, we will talk about something very near and dear to my heart, and that is the arts, specifically how the arts intersect with the 2019 primary election. This year, a group of candidates in master's level arts programs at Seattle University has created the Seattle Arts Voter Guide, which looks to inform voters about candidate platforms on the arts for municipal elections taking place in Seattle. Joining us to talk about it are Erin Naomi Burroughs. She is an MFA candidate in arts leadership. Hello to you, Erin. Thanks for having us. And also Jasmine Mahmoud. She is assistant professor in arts leadership at Seattle University. Hello, Jasmine. Hi, thanks for having us. And before we start, I should stress that the guide is nonpartisan and Seattle University neither endorses nor opposes any candidate. So as I said in the intro, this is a guide that seeks to inform voters about the arts related platforms of various Seattle candidates who are running in the 2019 primary election. Jasmine, what was the impetus for creating this guide? So I teach in the MFA and arts leadership program here at Seattle University, and as part of their curriculum, our graduate students every quarter do a practicum, which is often an internship in an uh, area arts organization. Um, In June, we had a lunch to thank all of our partners, and at that lunch, Nick Licata, former Seattle City Council member, was there. He started talking to our um, Kevin Mayfield, who founded the program, and a few other folks, and started talking about there's this election coming up. There's so many people running. Wouldn't it be great to have Seattle University host an arts forum for city council candidates? And so we mulled over that idea. It's a great idea, but we just didn't have the resources at the time. But I realized that this summer I'm teaching a public policy in the arts course. I realized that we could kind of do that same idea through a kind of a digital guide. And so that's kind of, it grew out of that conversation of how can we engage city council candidates with the arts in this election. Yeah. And, you know, uh, actually an arts forum really does sound like a tremendous idea. So don't lose that uh, because I think a lot of people would love to see that in the future. But uh, Aaron, if you could just talk a little bit about the importance of the arts to a city like Seattle. Absolutely. Yeah, I was um, lucky enough for one of my practicum experiences to work with the city of Seattle's Office of Arts and Culture. And just um, this past year, they opened King Street Station, their public facing gallery space. Um, So I think the first thing I want to say in my learning from that experience is that arts has been a critical part of indigenous culture in this region from from the beginning of time. Um, And so how their um, current exhibit, Lifting the Sky, um, is a really powerful opportunity to understand that context in Seattle and for Coast Salish peoples. Um, But I think most people would cite the arts as a reason why they stay or move um, to Seattle. In fact, um, there was a study by Arts Fund. They put out a social impact study and they cited over 60% of their survey respondents um, noted the arts as a factor of why they live in or near Seattle. That's certainly the case for me. I think why this program um, at Seattle University is thriving um, through the connection to existing arts organizations and just the density of the number of arts um, opportunities, events and organizations, and of course, the artists themselves um, who really serve as um, anchor culture in Seattle. Yeah, absolutely agreed. Seattle remains one of the most culturally vibrant cities in America. And so When looking at the arts from a political standpoint, where are some of the areas of crossover between the arts and civic and political issues? Jasmine? So often when people think about the arts and civic issues, one kind of theme or topic that comes up is gentrification. A lot of people say that artists are the front lines of gentrification or artists cause gentrification. And I think in my own research in this class, I aim to unpack that a little bit more, like how are those statements somewhat racialized? 
who those statements might leave out. So if we think about kind of white artists causing gentrification, we might not think about how there are black artists that exist in neighborhoods that also make work that engage their space. So I definitely think about arts in real estate, um, especially in Seattle, which I just read is now the most expensive city to rent in outside of California and has like the third most expensive real estate market in the U.S. So I think, yeah, arts arts and real estate. Um, I want to also give us to Aaron, who I think has some yeah. ideas as well. Yeah, yeah we um, recently expanded the guide to include all of our school board candidates who are running um, because we also know that education and educational justice in particular and how that intersects with racial justice is all wrapped up also in arts and arts education. Um, you know, one stat that I think is um, pretty moving is that People talk about the decline of arts nationally all the time. But when you really dig into the demographics, white youth, um, white people have had access to arts education at about the same level, whereas our um, Black and um, Latinx students have seen a decrease, um, you know, 40 to 50 percent um, since those 1980s baseline numbers. And so when we are asking our candidates to speak to arts, we're also asking them to really speak to justice and who has access um, to those um, opportunities. Right. Yeah. So this pulls together so much. And so with that in mind, how was the guide created? Jasmine, can you give us an idea of the process there? So I, because this idea was kind of very new, I had a few weeks to kind of put it into my syllabus. I completely changed the syllabus for the course. I took out an assignment and I put the guide, kind of a few steps of the guide in as an assignment. One of the first things I asked the students to do was to look at who was running tell me who they found interesting, tell me who they would maybe want to research and tell me if they had any conflict of interest. And so I used that and then I put them into teams and each team had one or two districts. And then within the team, they broke up, uh, They every student took two to four candidates in which they researched and kind of made a set of customized questions. Erin, on your end, how was it? For, yeah. yeah. So it was um, really looking into the platforms that people have already floated out there on other issue areas and noticing a lack of attention to arts despite it impacting all these civic issues. Um, so crafting those specific um, questions as a collective and then um, customizing them for some candidates um, and then follow up, sending out via email and following up via social media, phone calls. And um, some of the folks in our course actually had a chance to interact in person when those candidates came canvassing to their door. Mm. So it's been pretty interesting to see, um, you know, as the candidates are building up their campaigns and we're building up the guide to see these like touch points intersect. Yeah. I would love to get uh, an example of a candidate specific question. But first, I know that there were general questions that you asked all of the candidates. I believe there are three of those questions. What were they? They were, um, describe a meaningful art experience, arts experience that has stayed with you over time. How do the arts reflect the voices and perspectives of your own neighborhood? And how do you envision the arts as part of the Seattle, as part of Seattle, especially as part of education, equity, housing, transportation, culture, the economy, and or community? Got it. Okay. Well then, so give us an idea of a candidate specific question and who you asked it of. Sure. So this example from um, our student, Sam Van Orderhusen, was paired with Lisa Erbold, who is the candidate and also the incumbent in District 1, West Seattle. And so Sam posed the question to um, Councilmember Erbold, what can we do in terms of new policy that preserves existing cultural spaces in a high-priced real estate market like West Seattle? Mm. So that's one example. And it's a great example because it encompasses so many of the issues that we've touched on. So, Aaron, how many candidates participated ultimately and how many are in the guide? Yeah, I believe we've reached out to every candidate who yeah. um, 
is on the ballot for the primary election. Um, and I believe that was a lot of candidates too, especially for the uh, the city council race in Seattle. <laughs> It was 50, like 56, I think, wow. candidates. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And an additional 12 for the school board. Um, and I think we're at about 20 currently. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're continuing to roll in. So I just um, heard back from a few people this morning that they're planning to submit in the next couple of days. You know, before I let you go, I think that people listening might be curious to, to hear a little bit about what a master's in fine arts in arts leadership program is all about. So, uh, Jasmine, what's the curriculum and what sort of work are people being trained to do? Yeah, that's a great question. So we train students who want to lead in the arts, be it be an executive director of an arts organization, do community engagement, diversity, equity, inclusion work, um, development work. Um, The curriculum is really based on um, leadership management, but also kind of understanding the arts and the way that arts organizations work. Students come in the first quarter and take, um, I think, fundamentals of the arts sector and a leadership course. Throughout the two-year program, every quarter, students are paired in a practicum where they can work in an organization, they can do interviews with arts leaders, they can do a project-based practicum or a research paper. Um, And then the last quarter of the program, students work on their summary project, which is like an MFA master's thesis. There's been a lot of really great work. So one of our students, Shannon Wells, she's worked at the Showbox for 20 years. And when the Showbox was slated to be um, kind of no more, she led the Friends of the Showbox campaign um, and did that as part of her coursework. Um, Other students have made podcasts, um, have written, one of our students um, is a, DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion officer at a middle school, and he wrote a strategic plan for his middle school that became the strategic plan of diversity, equity, inclusion, and how it relates to the arts. So it's a really broad array of kind of work that students do that's just in dialogue with the arts sector. Did you want to add, Erin, your own experience and kind of yeah, um, it is a range of um, both the theory but also the practical application of um, from accounting to working with boards and volunteers um, to really thinking through your own leadership style and how you plan um, to bring your whole self to future opportunities. Um, so it is a balance of, um, you know, looking at the history of the arts and also planning for how you want to be part of the future of the arts. Well, it sounds tremendous. And the hands-on experience sounds like it's having a real-life impact on the city of Seattle, uh, particularly in helping to preserve the show box. That is quite the legacy for the program. People can check out the Seattle Arts Voter Guide at seattleartsvoterguide.com. I will have a link at indivisiblepodcast.org. Erin Naomi Burroughs is an MFA candidate in arts leadership, and Jasmine Mahmoud is assistant professor in arts leadership at Seattle University. Erin and Jasmine, thank you both so much. Thank you. Yes, thank you so much. So before we go, I want to take a brief moment and acknowledge this week's mass shooting in Gilroy, California. I actually grew up not far from there. I, I know the Garlic Festival very well. Everybody in the area does. And It's just hard to wrap your head around the fact that this little agricultural town has now been added to the ever-expanding list of communities in our country that have had to go through this. Someday, I have to believe we will find the resolve to actually do something about our gun laws. Over the last 50 years, our country has been conditioned to believe and accept that it has to be this way, that these regular mass killings are an inconvenient fact of life in America. But it doesn't, and they're not. And there is no more impactful way to honor the memories of the three people who were killed, including two children, than to keep working to regulate firearms. 
I have to believe that we'll get there someday and that we'll look back on this time with horror and disbelief. But for now, I'm sending my love to you, Gilroy. And that's going to do it for this week's show. If you missed anything, if you'd like to catch up on past shows, if you would like links to the things that we talked about, you can find all of that and more at indivisiblepodcast.org. You can subscribe to the show there, too. If you would like to get in touch, I would love it. The email address for the show is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com, and the Twitter handle is at indivisiblepod. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative, Inc. Our associate producer is Charlotte Gittleman. Thank you again to my guests, Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal, Jasmine Mahmood, and Aaron Naomi Burroughs. Special thanks to Lori Cowell. And as always, my thanks to you guys for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Bye. <laughs>